Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Jackie Fast, managing partner at Sandbox Studios. Sandbox Studios is a next-generation venture capital firm which addresses the challenge of funding and collaboration expertise for celebrity-owned products. She's also well-known for founding the agency Slingshot Sponsorship, which she started from her bedroom of 2,000 pounds and a laptop and created a multi-million dollar global powerhouse working with Rolling Stones, Sir Richard Branson. On this episode, we discuss when it makes sense for a company or a founder to partner with a celebrity and the intersection of talent and entrepreneurship, especially when it comes to consumer brands. Without further ado, here's Jackie. Jackie, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I am very excited to be here. Thanks so much, Mike. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure having you on. I am so excited to to have a chat. This is going to be fun. So when you and I first spoke, we talked about how you started off your career in London, but wanted to know, what was your initial attraction to London? How did you get there and why did you end up leaving Canada? So I usually like to tell people that I went to Europe to like, you know, pursue other venues. The truth is I was very young and I got in a fight with my boyfriend and I bought the cheapest ticket out of Canada to the English speaking country that I could find when I was drunk at three in the morning. And my mother told me that I needed to sleep it off and see if that was really the right decision. And I just kind of went with it. Um, and honestly, it was the best thing I ever did. But it was very unplanned, as is most of the decisions in my life, if I'm honest. Um, and I've just made the, made the best of it. And, and like I said, I mean, moving to London was the best thing I ever did. Amazing. Amazing. So why was it the best thing that ever happened to you? Well, I grew up in a small suburb outside of Vancouver, Canada. And, you know, it was a great childhood experience. But the exposure to like how the world works was limited. I think I had just graduated university. Most of my friends were wanting to be teachers, nurses, or waitresses. And uh, that wasn't really what I wanted to do. But the truth of the matter is I didn't know what I wanted to do. So when I landed in London, backpack in hand, um, you know, to see the world, it really was frightening how much stuff I did, like the financial industry I had never even heard about. And just the experience with people that were maybe slightly like educated in a different way, exposure to Europe. Um, and it just opened up a whole new world of like entrepreneurship that I was never exposed to as a child. That's amazing. So was the initial plan when you got to London was to actually go and see the world and maybe like London was like the first stop for that and then you kind of just got sucked into London or like what was kind of like the thinking once you landed? So the idea was I was going to backpack Europe for two months. So I arrived with a backpack and I had heard that you could work. You didn't have to pay rent if you worked at a pub. So my very first stop in London is, and this is like super hilarious to most people who know me. I lived in the back of a shed in Tooting Broadway at a Tooting Broadway pub, which is like a dodgy place in London in February, which is like minus five. Uh, And I used to sleep with like a space heater and a a sleeping bed 
bag. Um, and that's kind of where I started out. And the idea was I would go to Spain and Italy and all of these things. But the truth of the matter is I landed in London and I, I really immediately fell in love with it. And I managed to see all of those wonderful places kind of over time. But I, you know, I landed in London, loved it. I stayed at the pub job for like only three weeks. Then I became a receptionist at a gym uh, until I kind of figured out my way and eventually got a job as a sponsorship manager. And that's kind of how it all started. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, so how did you get into sponsorships? I mean, I know that you kind of teased it by saying that you became a, a, a sponsorship manager after you were a receptionist. But was there like initial attraction to sponsorship or were you just kind of like, I just need money to survive and just I'll kind of go with that with kind of anything that kind of pays the bills. I was on a working holiday visa in London and I desperately needed a visa. And so I was, um, I had happened to do some contract jobs for a company called the Direct Marketing Association. And they had a job as a events manager come up. And I said, well, if I applied for this and I got it, would you get me my visa? And they said, well, maybe, why don't you come for an interview? So I bombed the interview. Um, not, not because I couldn't do the job, just I didn't really want to. And I think they sussed that out. And after three days, the marketing director kind of caught me in the hallway. He said, I see that you have sponsorship in your title. Would you be a sponsorship manager? And I said, like, I see that you have sponsorship in your CV. Would you be a sponsorship manager? And I said, well, does it come with a visa? And he said, yeah, if you're a sponsorship, if you take this job, it will. And I was like, done. At that point, I had never understood what sponsorship was. This The the title sponsorship was in my resume because um, I had worked previously at a golf resort and I was doing the marketing role and a girl doing the same role didn't want the same title as me. And so they gave me the role of sponsorship, even though I was never doing sponsorship. And so my first job in sponsorship, I had no experience, no clue, had no idea what I was doing. Um, and so frantically went home and Googled what is sponsorship and how do I do sponsorship? Um, and, and that, you know, and that, that's kind of how I got the job. They gave me a visa. Um, but I think because I was so nervous about doing a bad job and also not just doing a bad job, I would do a bad job and I would lose my visa. I really overcompensated. My first target was 50,000 pounds in the first year. I brought in 183,000 pounds. And then by the third year, I was bringing in half a million. So although I didn't know what sponsorship was when I took the job, um, I was, you know, hell bent on keeping my visa. And I, I managed to create a really new model of sponsorship, which kind of paved the way for me launching Slingshot. That's amazing. So talk to us a little bit about what sponsorship is, maybe like what like a day-to-day life is with sponsorship, how you were helping brands or, or partner with brands. Like I think that would be also really helpful. So as a fundamental, sponsorship is effectively tapping into somebody else's audience. In its really base crap way, it would be like a logo on your favorite football jersey. Like that that is and that's brand awareness. So it typically is for brands who are trying to, you know, keep things front of mind. And uh, Coca-Cola at the board level, and this is a true statement from the like chief marketing officer from Coca-Cola, they used to, their sponsorship thesis was, we like your shit, so you should drink our shit. That was their tagline of sponsorship. And they used to like blast Coca-Cola logos everywhere to be associated with things that people like. And the truth is it, it works because it's brand awareness and it makes things front of mind. So going back, it's basically, you typically you tr- you're trading a logo for or association with something and exposure to another audience. Um, In terms of my day-to-day job, I worked with both brands and talent. With talent or properties, I would go get sponsors. 
So if you were a football team or a hockey team or a baseball team or whatever, you would hire me and I would kind of decide what's the most valuable asset. Is it the front of shirt? Is it the box? How is that packaged up? What is the cost of that? Um, and then I take that out to your Coca-Cola's, Pepsi-Cola's, Diageo's of the world and sell the sponsorship. With my talent clients, so I worked with the Rolling Stones, Richard Branson, Elton John, I would be tasked with typically helping them commercialize things like their tour. And so that that's kind of what I did. So, I mean, a lot of the time, I mean, day to day, I was like really, it was very sales focused, but it's also really heavily creative um, and understanding how to leverage partnerships. But the best part of my job is by the time it comes to um, said festival or football game or whatever the case is, my job is done. So I usually just get drunk backstage at like really great events. That's like the truth. That's like a true statement. That was my job. And my clients will attest to that. And I was very good at my job. (laughs) (laughs) But that's great, though, because I mean, like, unlike a lot of people's jobs in entertainment or at events, that night um, at the event, that's really when your actual job begins, right? That's actually usually entertainment. Your Friday is your Monday. Right. And so, and so the fact that you actually could actually enjoy yourself at these events because you've actually done all the work, you've gotten the placement right, you've brought the partnership together. That's amazing. And so, talk a little about Slingshot and what led you to start your own sponsorship company. So similar again as my getting a flight to London. Um, I probably would have stayed at my previous job as a sponsorship manager for longer. But what happened is the marketing director who hired me moved on and they hired a new CEO and a job for a commercial director came up and I applied for it because I, and quite frankly, in hindsight, I should have got it. I was turned down because I was told I didn't have enough experience, uh, even though I was the second person bringing in the most revenue of the entire company and there's 75 people there but that's by the by. Um, But what really irked me is that they then hired a guy uh, to this day is probably the worst person I've ever worked with. And I get interviewed all the time. And I say this like all the time. And he's never like ever reached out to be like, I'm really sorry. But no, he was the worst person I've ever worked with. He would be so bad that you would pitch him an idea and he forgot that you pitched it to him and then tell you the next morning, like, don't you think I'm so clever? Uh, And Uh, I am not one to hold my tongue and I did not last very long. And after a pretty large fight, I stormed out, then went to try to find. And at that point I was in the UK. That was my only experience working in London. So, I mean, I had to keep going in sponsorship because that's all I, all I had done. And there were only seven agencies at the time in London who did sponsorship. I applied for every single one of them. Nobody would even take a meeting with me because what I was doing was corporate sponsorship. What they were doing is sports sponsorship. And so I set up a slingshot sponsorship really with the idea that I wanted to make enough money to pay rent. I think my business plan was I wanted to make 83,000 pounds a year or 81,000 pounds a year. It was, it's minimal. Um, and again, not dissimilar to like being worried about keeping my visa. You know, I just, I really grafted and we ended up winning some incredible clients. Prince was one of my first clients um, and we just kind of nailed that out of the water. And the seven companies of the seven companies I had tried to get a job with that didn't interview me. Two of them I almost bought at one point. Um, two of them went under and one of them tried to buy us or I almost sold to one of them. So yeah, it's a pretty incredible story. The value of Slingshot was is that we did everything from like sustainability conferences. I did a TV show in Ghana, did help them find like sponsorships for that. Uh, you know, one of one of my favorite clients is Richard Branson. We did a bunch of blockchain events for him in 2014 when that was kind of like hitting it big and understanding how to commercialize those. So 
the the skill set is I mean, the sectors were super diverse, which really plays into what I do now, um, because I've literally had exposure in shoes, T-shirts, alcohol, water brands, sustainability, Bitcoin, SaaS. Like there's almost nothing I haven't touched. And it seems like, because obviously we're going to talk about venture capital here in a second. It seems like you've done an incredible job of building your network and building a network very, very fast. But how do you advise, since, I mean, VC is kind of also, it seems like sponsorship, a very, you know, network industry, very tight industry. How do you go about, or maybe some like piece of advice around how someone should like build their network quite as quickly as you did? I mean, honestly, the truth of the matter is, is I have a one-year-old baby now and things, things I probably would have said pre-baby and also pre-pandemic are different. Um, and, you know, before that, I would say yes to everything. You know, I attended all of the events and, you know, I tried to speak at as, I mean, at Slingshot, I spoke at kind of like any event that anybody wanted me to speak at. And at that point, once I sold, I was like such a sought after speaker. I was able to charge like crazy amounts of money because I had built, but I had built up that network of like, this is, this is what I talk about and people love to hear me speak. Uh, you know, it, it also helps I'm a woman in a male dominated industry. You know, people want to see the diversity. Um, so, so I would say go to as many things as possible. And now I would say like really lean into the connectors, you know, the people that have better networks. So I am a connector. And if you would have hit me up in London, there's not anybody I didn't know. So, you know, if you landed in London and you had a coffee, usually, and this is the other thing, like you take me out for a drink, I will go. It doesn't matter who you are. If you offer me free alcohol, I will show up. I love a glass of wine. And then it's those people that are like, oh, this person's doing this and I can connect them. And so I think my new strategy now is really like, I don't have as much time as I used to. So now I just like really focus on where I spend my time. So you sell Slingshot. What was your attraction with maybe early stage companies and why did you want to head into VC and become an investor? Well, it's actually, surprisingly, it's taken me a really long time to get to where we are at now. When I sold in 2016, it happened really quick and it was an amazing exit and I'm so happy I did it. But, you know, everybody was telling me, because I'm a bit of a workaholic, take your time, take your time. Don't jump into anything. Don't jump in, in, into anything. And I was like, I was still young and I made all this money. I was like, of course not. I like spent 2018 just like doing whatever I wanted to. Went to Burning Man, got married, went on a TV show, like really crazy stuff. And then kind of when I wanted to buckle down, I was really unsure of what I wanted to do and I had seen other as you would I look at other people who have had exits and asked like looked at what they were doing and they all tended to be angel investors and I said how hard could that be and without having ever had any experience nor even speaking to successful angel investors which I should have done I decided to blow a lot of my money on startups um, having never done it before so it was a big learning lesson, um, but because of what I had done with Slingshot uh, and my background and the types of check sizes I was writing, I was offered board positions in almost every single company I invested in. And it was that experience that really led me to VC. So I, you know, I invested in a bunch of kind of, I've, I've got a fintech, I've got a B2B advertising agency, I've got a Hermes bag company in Asia, like very, very random stuff. Like I did not have like a thesis. I was like, oh, this founder sounds cool. This is a cool idea. Let's do this, which was, I would never recommend. Actually, I think what I did was really bad, but also it's kind of given me the experience to do the VC fund correctly. But as I was sitting around these tables, 
And truthfully, all of them were men and three of them were from VCs, three of them, like then it was the founder, the CFO and somebody else. And nobody seemed to really have the right questions around how to build a consumer brand. And yet they all were sitting on a board of a consumer brand. And it was pretty shocking to me. Um, and then beyond that, I didn't understand that venture capital was invest in a hundred companies, wait till five break out and then actually care about the five. And so I would be sitting in these boards where people weren't really doing any work and it came to a blow. I got in a fight in one boardroom, which sounds, which actually like, as I'm saying, it sounds ridiculous. Um, but I remember they were talking about uh, launching a new product or a skew or something and I said well what did your what do your previous customers have to say and I remember distinctly one of the venture capitalists across the table rolling his eyes like here she goes again she's going to take more time up on our boardroom and I like looked at him I was like do you have a problem and he said well you know I think they've covered the numbers I was like listen if they can't answer this went to the CEO I was like what did your customers say he's like well what do you mean I said what did your customers say he's like well how would we know I'm like you ask them and they're like, well, how would we do that? I'm like, you've got their phone number, don't you? And then I was just like, okay, listen, I'm going to come in on Tuesday morning. I'll come in with your junior team. I'll write a script. I'll do all of like, I'll do like 30 calls. You can like get a sample of like, this is how we get feedback from our customers to like grow the product and stuff. And what happened is that these moments happened with like the six investments that I made. And I was working six full days a week, junior level positions because nobody else wanted to do it. And and I was going crazy. And my husband finally sat me down after six months and was like, you need to stop. You need to make a plan. Like you're so much more stressed out. And not only was I not getting paid, I had paid for the luxury to work in like account executive roles, right? Because I was an investor, but I was the only one who seemed to care about it. Um, and so I kind of took a step back and was like, how do I do this in a more effective way? And the the solution was, really like I need to hone in on what I'm good at and I'm very good. I am like the best in the field for sponsorship and partnerships and talent. And fortunately at that time, which was last year, you know, the growth of talent owned brands. So your Casamigos, Aviation Gin, Beats by Dre grown exponentially. You know, now it's almost, you don't see any D to C brand without talent attached to it. Um, and so we kind of honed in on that very strong, very specific thesis. Um, and, and we launched, launched with that, but I mean, it was it was a three year process, I would say, to get to this point. Can you talk about that a little bit more in terms of your actual thesis and what you mean by talent being part of the company or talent led or um, talent led companies? So first, I want to clarify, and like I was on a call earlier this morning, when I say talent, I don't talk HR. So it's it's celebrities with brands, just just for like all the listeners out there. Um, so Sandbox Studios, the fund exclusively invests in talent led brands. What that means is the business itself needs to be driven and look at customer acquisition and distribution through talent. Now, in its in the way that most people would understand it, Honest Company, Jessica Alba, Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow, Beats by Dre, Dr. Dre. Like these are companies that are co-founded with celebrities who are effectively entrepreneurs who have decided to look at a different venture. Talent-led also can be businesses that are driven and their execution and their product is talent. So Cameo is a talent-led business, but not owned by a celebrity, for instance. And the reason that we hone in on this is because venture capital is trying to crack this. So people in my position, especially super senior people in my position, A, never go into venture, but also B, 
like there aren't a lot of us. It's a really cool job. It's very hard to crack into. So somebody who has grown up, built a business, sold a business in sponsorship, like you'll find like seven people globally who's done, who've done that. So, and then to have somebody like that in venture. So that gives us a huge USP on every venture fund out there. Um, and we're the only fund at Seed who does it because we're the only ones who can evaluate it. And, and to your point, like different to my angel investing, we're like, cool idea. <laughs> like, like the founder, we're now meticulous. So we've seen since September, we've seen 96 talent led startups raising and we've invested in five companies. When you're working with actual talent that's part of the company, a co-founder of the company, do they already need to be part of the company in order for to attract your your interest? Or could a company, a, a consumer brand approach you and say, hey, we have this amazing brand, but we but we're looking for maybe like a face of the brand or someone that may be interested in partnering. And would that, for example, be of interest to you, even though they don't have they're maybe looking for talent to be part of the van or maybe have a relationship with, but that's actually not uh, the current state of the company. So um to answer that question is like twofold. Yes, I can do all of that. And there is one company that we are investing in that I pulled in a celebrity that I know very well. So because of my networks and my relationships, it's very easy for me to pick up the phone. However, if I, if we kind of went out and said that, I would never have any time. So going to like, well, just like we're, you know, I'm like a solo GP, right? So our fund is only 15 million. We've seen 96 talent led startups is all of a sudden I'm starting to open up looking at cool brands. I just, I mean, I wouldn't have any time. So, our fund will only invest when there's talent. Now, we have an agency because this keeps coming up, like great product, great founder, love it. But our fund's thesis is we only invest in talent. So we have an agency team that it's kind of mixed with XCAA, XUTA, X kind of like music label people that kind of work with brands to strategize. And I will say like, it's not beneficial for every brand. Talent isn't a magic bullet. And I think a lot of people kind of think, oh, well, if George, if Ryan Reynolds invested in this, then, you know, we'll, we'll have like a billion dollar exit. And that's really not the case. And so really understanding why talent is the most important part. What do you think is the biggest misconception when you have um, talent part of a company? It, it could be like the relationship between talent and the brand. It could be maybe what a talent actually brings to the brand. But I would just love to hear from your perspective, since you've talked to hundreds, if not thousands of entrepreneurs, that of course, many of which probably want talent to be part of their brand. What are maybe questions that they should be asking themselves to see if it actually is like a valid fit? So two misconceptions, um, and they're totally opposite, which is weird. One is talent are are useless and very risky. That's a really big misconception. And to say, and I mean, my clients were like Prince and the Rolling Stones. So like, you know, you can manage and mitigate risk very easily. And that the benefits always outweigh, almost always outweigh. So that is a misconception. The other, the other is the opposite. Like to my point, I think people just assume if they had star power, then their business is going to be like wildly successful. And Going back to like Casamigos, I really like, I like to use Casamigos. George Clooney isn't the reason it was super successful. It was a combination of a bunch of things, but fundamentally their product hit the right market at the right time with the right price. And they had the right distribution network in order to, to get that out there, which is why it kind of, kind of worked like that. So for brands that are in exceptionally cluttered spaces. So booze is an obvious one. Booze, water, 
coffee, things that you like consume that maybe product differentiation doesn't matter as much, food, snacks, any of that kind of stuff. Like you, when you go and look at a protein bar, there's like 50 of them. Aside from price, what's the other thing you're going to think about, right? It's cut through. There have been actually a couple of brands that have approached us that are like really great brands. And one of them, actually one of them that you know, so they are really, really heavily wanting to do, and actually one of them that's been on your podcast, really wanting to do talent. And when we kind of broke it down, there was no good reason. So they're very different in the market. Nobody ever will be the same as them. They don't even have enough products to sell. They keep selling out every time. And I'm like, why are you looking to give 10% of your business to somebody who's not going to move the needle? Because there's nowhere to move the needle. You don't even have products to sell. Um, and so like, you've got to really think strategically about what you're looking to do. I appreciate those thoughts. So the two misconceptions is that there's maybe one camp that thinks that talent is underrated and then one camp that thinks that talent is very overrated, right? Like useless, risky, as you say, when, when that's not the case. And it seems like talent works well in maybe like commodity type products. I don't mean like, yes, there's like differentiation in like the different types of, you know, booze and what have you, but it could be that if it's more of like a commodity, there's really not that much difference overall in the product, then like talent could really, really be helpful, uh, helpful and really leverage it. And when does it make sense, though? Because you brought up a really good point after you said that about differentiated products and how when you do have differentiated products, is can talent still work when you do have differentiated products? Like, does it actually make sense? Or can the product be, on the other hand, since I just spoke about a commodity, when you have differentiated products, does it still make sense or could it still make sense to actually partner with talent? So I am of the camp and I have always been that talent will get your business and your product farther than no talent. Always, every single time, if you know what you're doing. So if you don't know what you're doing, that goes out the window. But like I have built my entire career creating the right partnerships for brands from FTSE 100 brands to startup brands. And every single time, if you know what you're doing, it gets you farther, faster, cheaper often. And so it always makes sense. Now it's what you're prepared to pay, right? Like I'm a founder. I have this, I guess you can't really count the fund as my job, but I have founded two businesses, one of which I exited. The other is a vineyard, which is still successful today. As a founder, I don't like to give away equity. I sold my first business. I owned a hundred percent of it. I'm very, very funny about wanting to keep my equity. And I would probably do that at the cost of growth. That's probably not a smart thing to do. So you've got to kind of think about what it, what you want really, but a hundred percent their talent is always the answer. If you know what you're doing. I've got really two great examples. The one that I like to use a lot because most people are familiar with it is Beats by Dre. So, you know, you've seen, most people have seen the documentary, but haven't really looked at like why the brand blew up so much. Now there's a whole bunch of reasons. Authenticity really is for me the first starting point. So in the show, uh, Jimmy Iovine's like, why would you do sneakers? Why don't you do speakers? Whatever. It's like a good shift in, in kind of the, the idea. But the truth is Dr. Dre is an expert in sound. He's a producer at heart. He understands music and differentiation and, and what sounds good. So he has an expertise that lends into beats. Then you look at Jimmy and he's got the network. 
So then it's like an awareness funnel. So A, the product starts with something that people, he like there's an expert in sound creating something that is sound. He's, he's also a celebrity that kind of helps. Jimmy Iovine then has the network of celebrities who just like wear it. It doesn't matter if it works or it doesn't work. And so it's the funnel of awareness through talent, but a product that is it is on point, is authentic, and is a good product. That is why that worked as well as it did. Now, conversely, Kodak Pictures, great example with Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga, um, you know, you'd almost say Kodak was really ahead of the curve, which is so crazy for an antiquated, very old traditional company, right? But they did. They were one of the first. They signed Lady Gaga. She was the creative director of Kodak. She was super hot at the time. New audience, millennial. It sounds good on paper. But Lady Gaga doesn't care about cameras, is not like interested in the technical aspect of it, is not interested, she doesn't like her picture taken, like basic small things. She's not authentically going to be interested in that. She took the money, like went to the press launch, etc. Now, that wouldn't be a problem if Kodak knew how to leverage it. There is now an opposing, there's differing objectives. So Lady Gaga wants the paycheck. She kind of did that. She feels like her job is done. Kodak's like, this didn't work because your face has not helped us shift more cameras. And what happens is they're both fighting because they need more time from her. She feels like she's given all of the time because she doesn't care. If she cared about it, it would be different. Lady Gaga recently launched House Laboratories, which is her beauty line. Lady Gaga actually cares about it. She's in the lab. She created the colors. She wears the makeup. She's interested in the looks. Like, you know, she goes out. She, like, dolls herself up. She is very interested in changing her persona to fit her mood. That fits with the beauty line. So in three years down the road, when, like, House Laboratories and Lady Gaga is doing something else, House are like, listen, you need to come and do this thing. Why don't we get on board? What kind of lipstick do you care about? She'll take that meeting. These are great examples. I think what's interesting, too, is in the two examples where it was successful, House and Beats, of course, the talent, the celebrities found in the companies. Whereas Kodak, I would imagine she didn't get equity for Lady Gaga for being a spokesperson or for being part of Kodak. So my question to you, just based off those examples, how important is it for founders that are looking at talent for them to actually be part of the company in some ways in equity or not? I love that. That's a very good question and something I don't talk about enough, but you're 100% right. I don't think it's important. And you're going to think that's crazy. I don't think it's important at all. So my at Slingshot, we never did equity because equity deals never happened. I talked to my clients about doing equity all the time because I was like, startup, it was like fun. And people are like, all right, Jackie, just do your thing. Because it's too, it's convoluted. Like you have to set up another business. Then they have like, how many shares? And you got to get the legals. It's So um, I only, only, only ever did sponsorship. And our partnerships were insane. They sold so much stuff. We worked with startup brands. We worked with like Hyundai. The, the results on a great partnership that fit that is authentic are always the results. Equity, I don't think is important. Where equity comes into play is not on results. It's on the actual transaction. So if you are a startup, you cannot pay. You do not have enough capital to pay somebody the fee, the talent fee that they would normally charge, which is why all this equity stuff is happening. It's not because it's better. It's because it's what they can afford. Those are really great points. It just seems like if you're a celebrity and you actually co-found a company, it seems like you're probably going to care more about that company. You don't think so. You're going to care about more of that company than, than an actual doing like an actual partnership or or a sponsorship type deal. 
You got to remember, like, this is not their job. So different to Gwyneth Paltrow and Jessica Alba, who's who basically were like, okay, acting's my side hustle, but I'm passionate. Like, Jessica Alba was passionate about baby products that were natural because there weren't any. And she started having kids and she's like, this is messed up. Um, and she literally struggled getting into Target because it was like, why is Jessica Alba creating a beauty line? That's so weird. Gwyneth Paltrow, same deal. People are like, nobody cares about steaming your vagina, Gwyneth. Like, calm down, calm down, do another movie, right? That this is like, I mean, they really paved the way for this. But when, I mean, Natalie Portman started a shoe company, like, I, I mean, I used... Kodak and maybe Kodak was the best one. There are loads of uh, Hulk started a pasta company. I mean, I can give you like a hundred examples where they were the sole owner. I mean, Mark Wahlberg is a great example. Keeps launching companies that like are really horribly run and don't go anywhere. So owning, because you got to remember these people are not entrepreneurs. They are actors, musicians, you know, like whatever their talent and their skill set is talent. They also like lean into that. They that's what they like doing. So when they launch a shoe company, it's not their skill set. Those are excellent points. I mean, excellent points about how they aren't natural entrepreneurs. That's not how they made their money. That's not how they made their mark on all of us. It's not it's not through that. It's through whether it's acting or or sports or or what have you. And if you're a founder and thinking about though, like partnering with talent, like what else should you kind of like think about in that capacity in terms of how much they should be involved in the business, like a celebrity? Like, should they not be? Should you be like, all right, like we would love you to be part of the company, and obviously, I guess you would probably have to give you uh, some equity since we can't actually really afford you at, at your price. But should you also maybe have an attachment in terms of okay, they're actually not going to be part um, at all about operating this business period. Well, if they're an equity partner, that's their investment. So I think that they should be as involved as you would want them to be. But I also, I mean, this is, this is where the experience comes in. You have to know how to manage that. You know, I have spent a career managing talent and putting, making sure that they stay in their lane and are happy to stay in their lane. But one, I mean, a great example, we recently invested in a company called Happy Sake Spritzer. It's a ready-to-drink seltzer with sake. It's amazing. One of the co-founders is Jordan Barrett, who's a male supermodel. He is fabulous. He has all these creative, crazy, I think crazy ideas, um, but like really tailored to the Gen Z audience. And like the, his input is actually really valuable. Doesn't mean we're going to do all of it, but like the more that you get him engaged, the more he's going to come up with the opportunities and the more it's going to be front of mind, you know, and that's what you want. What was your method building relationships within the VC community? I mean, I'm still doing it. I think our, so obviously I would, I would love more. I would, so any, any introductions anybody would like to make, we would love to hear from you. It's a very different industry than the one I've worked in. Like that's the truth. You know, I'm in marketing and advertising and I've, and I've also done that in Europe and now I've moved to America into a completely different industry. And so I've had to kind of work harder and going back to my thing about finding connectors, I've, I've managed to find some really great people in venture funds where I'm very valuable to people because if they're looking at investing in something and they think that a talent would be a good fit, I can usually help them make that conversation happen. So, you know, I am able to help um, where most people can't in certain specific, in a specific area. And that has proved useful. And I didn't understand before I launched a fund that venture is very much, you might be like in, like venture funds are very small companies, but actually you're so reliant on your venture network. 
for deal flow and other opportunities. And so I really value other people in other venture funds that I've made friends with in LA and um, just in America in general. What's one thing you would change about venture capital? One, I think it's disgusting slash disappointing about women in VC. And I don't just mean fund managers. I also mean investors. So there are very few women who will invest in funds. And yet many women who invest directly in female founded brands like deodorant or a face cream. And I kind of get that. But if you, but like it's, it's a whole, my issue is that it's a whole thing, right? So you don't have a lot of female fund managers. I think last I checked is 4%. And then the investors that invest in that are like way less than that, that are female investor LPs. My guess is it's a lot less than that. And it's a lot less because there's no female fund managers. So you're still, and also I'm not trying to like, you know, the truth of the matter is, is VC funds are the ones putting in money in companies that are actually growing and scaling and going to the next series. And I'm not saying you can't take a punt by putting $5,000 in your neighbor's like deodorant company. But like, if you really want to talk about diversity and make a change, like you have to start being part of the ecosystem. So that is something I feel pretty strongly about. I also do not like the the whole theory and thesis with VC funds that you invest in 100 companies, you wait for five to break out, you sit on your ass and do nothing, and then you fund the other five because that relies on the um, idea that money is the only issue, that is the only challenge for businesses. And being a entrepreneur myself, that is the least thing. It's always top of mind because it's super stressful, but money is always for stuff and it's typically for people or something else. And if you do not have the people that are willing to back you, help you make the introductions, make the, like get your sales in, like I did, go to the thing, start like doing scripts for your junior people, you will not have a growing business. And I think that venture needs to stop being so like laissez-faire about where their investment dollars go and start putting real effort in terms of their like experience consulting and network. And I don't see that happening. Yeah, no, those are two great points. Really great points. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Okay, so I've got really weird answers for this. <laughs> so so um, the, the first one, my husband like reads um, voraciously and I used to as a child and then I, I just don't have the time anymore. I feel like, like I said, I have a one-year-old baby. I'm going to blame it on the baby. But my personal book is uh, I Am Pilgrim, not because of the book, but it took him 10 years to write it. And it was like, I think it's one of the best kind of books out there. And I just, I love that. I love like the long graft and I love, you know, I think there's really something to say, you know, and I especially built a business on like Insta famous stuff, but like the slingshot was the same. Like, I think there is something about like putting in the work. And I think so many people overlook the hours and the time spent and like, the, the amount of self-motivation that's required to kind of get the level of success that most people are trying to achieve with like no, no effort. I love I Am Pilgrim for that. And 
professionally, and this is a, b- a bit of a flaw, but my, the second book I wrote is called Rule Breaker, Rebellious Leadership for the Future Work. And the reason why I'm plugging that is because I was actually commissioned to write a leadership book. And I was like, I don't really have anything to say about leadership. And I did all this research about rule breaking just because of my experience. And I speak to a lot of people who want to be entrepreneurs and are usually working a corporate job and really scared to take the leap. And like, you know, as I kind of talk to you, I was really forced to take the leap multiple times, actually, with all of my things. And I kind of wish there was more, more conversation around kind of taking a leap of faith and not being like when I was looking at starting a business I thought you had to have more you had to know more people you had to have more money it takes money to make money all of that kind of stuff and the truth of the matter is our world is so different now you can start a business with a laptop and it can be you know we were generating eight figures uh, within three years and I started that business with two thousand pounds I think the opportunities now are like really vast and I think more conversation needs to be out there for people who are looking to to start up a business no, definitely. I really appreciate you sharing both these books. I'm really excited to uh, to add them to the uh, reading list, and also really excited. I didn't read your book, so I, so I have to read Rule Breaker, and 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 certainly have to read I, I Am Pilgrim as well. My final question to you is: What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Never give up and just keep going. I think the one thing is like it's a it's a roller coaster, and until you've been out the other side, like until you've had an exit, it all seems shit. Like every, just, it's awful. I think like, it's like, it's just because you just never know, right? Like you're making all these sacrifices and you're like, is this really worth it? I haven't been paid in four years. Like, is this going to go anywhere? Um, and so like in hindsight, my, my thing is, is just like when you've come out the other end, you understand like it's very cyclical. Like the highs are always going to be high. The lows are always going to be super, super low. But if you just hang in there and keep going, I mean, you'll, you'll get there. So that's something I always tell everybody. Love that. Love that piece of advice. That's great. That's great. Jackie, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's been such a pleasure. And there you have it. It was awesome chatting with Jackie. I highly recommend following her on Twitter at JackieFast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.